Please take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. Today we consider the life of Gideon. Uh, There are two judges that are more famous than all the rest, Gideon and Samson. Samson is the last judge considered in the book of Judges, so we'll get to him. Uh, Today, uh, the subject of Gideon's life. In fact, uh, Gideon is given three chapters in the book of Judges. His story takes three chapters to tell. I have uh, elected, against perhaps my better judgment, to uh, not tackle it all today. I figured you want to be at home before 1 p.m. So we're going to consider chapter 6 today and then chapter 7 and chapter 8 next week. That's not the way most people break uh, Gideon's life, but I think chapter 6 uh, stands alone uh, in, in terms of its merit for our application today. So we're going to consider just chapter 6. Enough information is here that we uh, won't muddy the water by trying to cover all that cover, is covered in chapter 7. So we'll do that next time. But this morning I want us to uh, read the entirety of chapter 6 and uh, appreciate you being here and opening your Bibles together with us. Before we do so, let me remind you that what's going on in the book of Judges is that uh, there is no king, and Israel has no leadership, and Israel is doing exactly what people do without leadership. They're doing whatever they want. And uh, so they do whatever they want, and whatever they want is not what God wants. turns out that God's people actually are benefited when they gather together repeatedly with like-minded people to encourage and stimulate, help one another, be helped by others, and so forth. In the New Testament, we call that church. Turns out church matters in your life. If you forego church, you decide that somehow you can go it alone, I promise you, you will go it alone, and you'll go without the power of God and the people of God, and you will degenerate. You will become As we just sang, you'll become a wanderer. You will wander away from God. You'll wander away from His Word. You'll wander away from faithfulness. And you certainly have wandered away from the church, if that's the the approach you take. In the Old Testament, the people of God were held together by the covenant. It was the covenant, and everything that was built around the covenant was uh, was critical to Israel. And so the, the tabernacle first, and then later the temple became the central place where the covenant was distributed or dispersed to the people. And the people would come to Jerusalem uh, when uh, the temple was built, and there where they would gather at these different feasts and festivals, so Pentecost and, and Passover and others, they would all be celebrated in a way that would build unity and keep folks connected to God. But during the period of the judges, none of that is occurring. It's a period of more than two centuries uh, from the death of Joshua to the rise of the monarchy, the first king, Saul. But there is a king. There is the invisible king, the one true king, the king of kings, God himself. These are his people. And uh, God is ruling his people with an unseen hand, except when God brings his spirit to bear on the lives of of these seemingly random people. So people like Othniel and Ehud, and we will meet people by the name of 
Jephthah. We've met Gideon, or rather uh, Deborah and Barak. Uh, and, and we'll meet Jephthah. We'll meet Samson. God falls upon these people with power to, to lead his people, to, to service the, the hand of God, the mystery of God, the work of God uh, in the Old Testament. But in spite of that, or if you will, around that, these people are pretty much doing whatever they want to do. So there are millions of people with no ruler. How's that going to end up? Well, it's going to end up badly if you're a follower of God. So as we've seen, God allows these other nations to come in and to oppress Israel uh, at different junctures along this two centuries of timeline. And uh, that's what's happening here. So we, we meet a new oppressor. We meet a new enemy in uh, Judges chapter 6. It is the nation of Midian, the people of Midian. Now, Midian uh, is across, or if you will, south of uh, Israel and across, if you will, into Arabia, or today we would call it modern-day Jordan. So the land of Midian is, is way over there. And it's nowhere near Israel except when they want it to be. And we're going to find that these people, uh, are, they bring uh, bands and bands and bands of warriors in, and they just pillage the land like a bunch of locusts and grasshoppers. They just come across the land and they take whatever they want. Uh, might makes right. And the Midianites are oppressing Israel to the point that they are hiding and building caves and digging holes in the ground and so forth to hide from the Midianite raiders who would come in. And they would come in, in record numbers. They never seen this kind of oppression. And uh, we'll see all of that here in Judges chapter 6. So let's begin reading in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That is a refrain that begins the story of each of these judges we're looking at. The people did evil. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. If you're geographically non-inclined, Gaza is on the Mediterranean. So they would come all the way from Jordan, all the way across Israel, all the way to Gaza. Basically covering from east to west, all across Israel. And leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the land, the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
but you did not do what I told you to do. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. I'll stop there a minute just to make a point. If you beat out wheat, you do this in the open air because the wind carries the chaff off. But he's not beating out wheat in the open air. He's beating out wheat in the wine press. So the wine press would have been a structure around which there's a stone basin where they would take the grapes, put them in there, and they would walk around on them and squeeze out the juice and so forth. That's an indoor facility. Now, how much wind is in an indoor facility? Praise God, not much. So if you're beating out wheat indoors, that's a fool's errand. Or maybe just a scaredy cat. Or maybe a wise man. Because that's all you got. Hmm. That's how bad it was. So verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. You shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into the house, prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. 
When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that they had built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal, and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood with him, Do you do all of Baal's dirty work? Do you contend for Baal? You got a pretty wimpy God, don't you? Joash is a bit of a wise guy here. Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now, all that's basically a, a title of honor. Gideon is now referred to by this nickname. Jerubbaal, he contends with Baal. He fights with Baal. Which, by the way, is not much of a fight because Baal is nothing but an idea. But a powerful idea nonetheless. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, to Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Remember, these are all tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. These are four of the 12 tribes, all in the northern area of Israel. All of these tribes are called out, basically sent all points to all of these tribes, saying, send your guys, send your guys, send your guys, send your guys. We need men, we need men. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground there was dew. Now there are two things uh, that stand out in the Gideon story to most people. Number one is this fleece experience. We'll cover it momentarily. And the second, of course, is chapter 7, which is where he takes this, uh, this army, which numbers 32,000 men. Going to, we're going to see this next time. 32,000 men that God pairs down to only 300. So the first is the fleece. The second is this awareness that Gideon uh, goes to battle against the Midianites and wins, by the way, not with 32,000, but with 300 men. So we'll cover that next time because it's just 
too much to say about this one story. Several things stand out uh, just to make sure you're aware of the narrative here. In the, in the book of Judges, of course, uh, Gideon is, is anything but... Uh, He's anything but a guy you would pick out of a lineup and say, there is a, there's a strong guy, there, there's a powerful guy, there's a leader, there's, a, there's an impressive man. Gideon is not that guy. Uh, he, he acknowledges that himself uh, as regards his own credentials. He said, well, my clan is the smallest in all of Manasseh. Now, you remember, half of Manasseh is on the the, the west side of the Jordan, and half of Manasseh is on the east side of the Jordan. When they divided up the land, they took the land of Manasseh and d- divided it in half. And so on the half that, that Gideon lives in, on the, what we'd call the Israel side, he's in the smallest of the clan in the entire family, if you will. And in his particular family, immediate family, he's the least, meaning he's the youngest He's the most insignificant. Gideon is is not an impressive person. You're not going to line up, sort of harkens back to David in his story. They line up the sons of Jesse, and turns out they they didn't even include David because he's the young boy. He's the shepherd boy. He's he's not a warrior. He's not going to be a king. He doesn't have any earthly credentials that the world would be impressed with. But God put his hand upon David, just like now God puts his hand upon Gideon, and he calls him out to serve him. There's a second thing you need to know, and we'll see this plainly momentarily, and that is that this story parallels the call of Moses in ways that are beyond our time limit today. We just don't have time to cover this, but if you were to go back and consider the the call of Moses, and we will briefly in a minute, you will find that it's almost identical to the call of Moses. Moses protests, I'm not qualified, I can't do this, I can't speak, not a problem, I got that worked out. Well, I'm not real sure that that you're powerful. Well, I want you to do this and this. Remember with Moses, he tells him, throw that staff down, it turns into a snake, now pick it up, turns back into a staff. Stick your hand in your coat, pull it back out, it's leprous. Put your hand back in your coat, pull it back out, it's now clean. Two times God proves himself to Moses, here again with Gideon, two times with the fleece, God proves himself to Gideon. So this story parallels the Moses story uh, emphatically because God is raising up a deliverer. In this case, his name is Gideon. So there there are several things here that are impressive that we shall think about and talk about this morning. But I just want to make three quick applications that I hope will help us as we think about Gideon this morning. Number one, I want you to to take caution from what is an obvious question uh, as regards Gideon, and that is that he seems to accuse God of failure. Look at Judges chapter 6, verse 10, and then again in verse 13. He seems to accuse God of failure. Uh, You'll you'll note uh, in verse 10, God says, I I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the first thing that we see in in this story is that the the Israelites are disobedient. 
that nothing has happened to them that is not consequential based on their disobedience. They've brought this Midianite oppression on themselves. Who's at fault here? Well, you'll note that there is a veiled accusation of God in verse 13. Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, verse 13, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, note this. Gideon has his facts right. The Lord has forsaken them in the sense that God has allowed the Midianites. He's removed his, if you will, umbrella of protection upon the Israelites, and he's allowed the Midianites to come in and to oppress them terribly. I mean, if you're digging holes in the ground to hide from the enemy, that's bad. None of us have ever lived like that. Building caves, digging caves out of solid rock mountains, it's hard work. It's not the kind of thing you do just because you have a little extra time on a Saturday. These people are running from these oppressors. Why is this happening? Because in a since God has forsaken them. God has brought judgment upon them because of their disobedience to God. God does not sneer at disobedience, yours, mine, or anybody else's. God is not pretending this doesn't matter. In fact, by his action, he is demonstrating that he clearly cares about what's going on here. But be careful that you do not accuse God of failure, which could be interpreted as what Gideon is actually doing there in verse 13. Now, this, this particular subject is, speaking pastorally, if I might, is, is very difficult. Because we, we are, for the most part, very linear. We want to see, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if somebody thumps your ear, it hurts, there's a cause and effect, and somebody thumps your ear, they're the cause, you're the effect, and we'd rather be the cause than the effect. And we, we have a tendency to say, well, the reason this is happening is because of that, and the reason that's happening is because of that, and so forth. We want to think that way about every category. So some of us are wired this way. We were trained this way by our parents who were wired this way because of their parents who trained them this way and their parents who trained them this way. And the reason this is happening to you is because of you. And the reason this is broken is because of you. And the reason you're a failure is because of you and you and you and you. And you are the problem. Now, in some cases, that is absolutely the case. It's absolutely the case. If you turn the keys over to a teenager and he goes and he drives excessively and has a wreck, there is a cause and effect there. But if you're driving along like these college golf 
team members last week in West Texas in your school van coming back from a golf tournament and you're on the highway and a car or a truck, in this case, a pickup truck, driven, by the way, by a 13-year-old. Hello. Comes across the line, plows into the front end of your van. Would you say that those college golf team members were at fault? Would you say that those college golf team members experienced this sorrow, their families now grieving because of this sorrow, because of some sin in their lives? I would tell you, friend, you better be really careful making ridiculous statements like that. You don't even know those people. And even if you do know them, you don't know them. So this is a very difficult area. But in this case, we know because the Bible explicitly tells us the reason the Midianites are doing Midianite things is because Israel is not doing Israel things. Israel is, these are the people of God and they are failing to represent. They're failing to show up. They're failing to obey. And therefore, God has brought an oppressor. That's the message loud and clear throughout the book of Judges. The reason these difficult things are happening is because of your failure. Let me show you an example of this in the New Testament, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. This is the story of Jesus encountering a man who's been blind from birth. One of the most famous miracles in the Bible. John records seven such sign miracles. This is one of the seven. So it's pretty impressive. Notice what he says in chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, this is the typical contemporary theology, not true theology, just what people say. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Multiple choice. You can choose A or B. Because in my theology, there is no C, there is no D, there is no E. It's either that or that. And that's the way it's got to be. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, there is a C. There is a C. And you'll recall that the balance of chapter 9 is a very long chapter where this man is brought before the religious leaders and they accuse him of this, by the way, of this line of thinking. You're, the reason that you're blind is because you're a sinner. And uh, then they bring his parents in because they want to explore their sin uh, and so forth. And then eventually he says, look, I don't know what your theology requires, but I can tell you this. I was blind and now I see. And he's the guy that did it. Oh, get away from here. Who are you now teaching us and so forth? They just, it blew up their theology because their theology was bogus. So hear me say this, friends. Be careful that you don't build a house on your impressions. Be careful that you think that what you know is all there is to know. Be careful that you don't associate linear thinking with every circumstance. 
Because in John chapter 9, there is a third category. It's called the glory of God. Jesus is going to come along, and this man has suffered and suffered and suffered for decades, and now he's going to be relieved of blindness. He's going to see for the first time in his life. Why was this man born blind? So that the glory of God might be manifested in the life of a man who has been blind from birth. That's why. You say, well, I don't like that. Don't care. Doesn't matter. You're not God. You don't get a vote. Well, there's some hard things out there that it's hard to understand. Absolutely. And if you live a little longer, there are going to be some more hard things that are hard to understand. So be real careful, friend, that your mouth doesn't write checks (laughs) that you can't cash. Because this is a difficult thing. So Gideon asked him, where is God? Why is he forsaken us? If God is for us, then why is this happening? Why are we digging holes in the ground and caves in the sides of mountains? Why is this happening? I'm reminded that the only hope we have is in the Lord Jesus. You know, the truth is, every one of us deserve consequences that we don't get. I I don't deserve to live. I have sinned. And the penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin in your life is identical to the penalty of sin in my life. And because you've sinned and I've sinned and we've all sinned and everybody we've ever known has sinned, why are we still alive? The answer is because God is more merciful than we understand. And this notion that you get to play God and decide, well, he's having this problem because of that, that just puts you in the category with the friends of Job who turned out all to be wrong. Be careful, friend. You don't know the hand of God. You don't know the wisdom of God. You just know where all this is going because the Bible tells us where it's going. It tells us ultimately it's going to heaven, and the only people who go to heaven are not the people who perform perfectly, but people who trust in the one and only one who has performed perfectly. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, the Bible declares this plainly, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we are sons and daughters of Adam, and we have inherited this sinful nature, and we get busy right away. We sin, and we sin, and we sin, and our lives are full of the carnage of sin, and God in His mercy has spared us, and God in His mercy has sent His Son to die in our place so that we might look to Him, and by looking to Him and His work, we can be set free. We can be saved to the glory of God. So be very careful that you don't blame God in a willy-nilly fashion and say, well, God has somehow failed. He has forsaken us. Well, he has not forsaken you in the way that most people use that term. He may have turned his face away in some way as a reflection of your disobedience. But the goal of that is ultimately your repentance, which is the same goal God has here, is to bring about repentance. And he does so by raising up these judges, in particular today, Gideon. There's a second thing I want you to note here, and that is that 
you should and I should neither ignore nor despise the promise of God to be with you. Neither ignore nor despise the promise of God to be with you. This is perhaps the most comforting truth in all of the story of Gideon. Notice in chapter 6 and verse 16. In verse 15, Gideon has just protested, my clan is weak and I am the least in all my father's house. I'm just the youngest boy. I got no credentials. To which the Lord responds in verse 16, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I will be with you. Again, as I said a minute ago, this is reminiscent of God's experience with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. invite you to hear these words in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you, when you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. All this conversation is occurring Mount Sinai, and that's precisely where he returns later and gets the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, which we'll cover tonight, by the way, in the Exodus workshop. This is the example of what it means to be in the care of God. Notice in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people, the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the promise of God's presence. He promised it to Moses, and now, now here in Judges chapter 6, he promises his presence to Gideon. Gideon is living his life, going about his workaday world. He's threshing wheat, hiding it from the Midianites. And God shows up in his life and promises to be present. I want to encourage you today that God has promised you, likewise, to be present, to be present. We have, we have far better revelation of the promises of God because we have more history. Gideon is uh, more than 1,000 years before the coming of Christ. We have 2,000 years of history since Christ. So we have at least a 3,000-year advantage on Gideon. In fact, it's far more than that. You add, add it up... Uh, specifically, but, but we have this great advantage of the history of the people of God and the work of the God, uh, the, the, the hand of God in our lives and the lives of our ancestors and our predecessors and so forth. We have all of this Bible that's been revealed to us. Gideon has nothing but the Old Testament and there only a portion of it. We have much more than that. We have the entire Old Testament and we have all of the New Testament. We have this revelation of God. We've been staked this enormous advantage I have a little exercise. I've asked Eric to help me with the lights. I want to show you that the Bible is a progressive revelation. That as you start in Genesis, we know very little about God, and we know very little about Adam, Eve, and so forth. But eventually, page after page after page after page, God is unveiling. He is revealing. He's taking the, the, the robes off, and he's showing us more and more and more of himself. So why are there 66 books in the Bible? Because it takes a lot of ink to explain all that God wants to eventually explain. You and I live in the light. Gideon lives in the light, but his light is much dimmer. I've asked Eric to help me with a little, little uh, dimming of the light. You see, if you're Gideon, then this is about how much light you've got. 
comparatively. But if you're one of us today, we have far more light. Now, we don't run the lights normally at this magnitude, so if you need your sunglasses, go ahead. But this is full light. Some of you say, why don't we do that all the time? Because that's very expensive, and these light bulbs won't last. So, turn that back to normal. Now, do you see the difference between Gideon and us? Gideon has a little bit of light, and he has a little bit of accountability. He has a little bit of understanding. But friend, we have the entire Bible. And we have centuries, even millennia of experience and the record of God's work. Listen, friend, one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for what we know about God and what we did with what we know about God. We're responsible so, sure, there's a negative component to that, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be better. I, I know better. We've sung about it again. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Help me. Help me. Yeah, absolutely. We're dependent upon God and His mercy, so forth. But, but there's a positive side of that is, how much did Gideon know that the Lord would be with him? Well, he knew that. But how much do you know that the Lord is with you? You know this, friend, because you have seen record after record after record after record after record. You've read every story in this Bible, or at least had it read to you, and you know these stories, and you know these examples, and you know this experience that you've had, and, and you're going to give an account to God for the fact that God has said and 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 said, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. But we act like we'd have forgotten that. We act like that we don't think that God is still with us. We're coming up on Easter, not Christmas. I remind you of a Christmas scripture. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, there Matthew quotes Isaiah 7. He describes it this way. The virgin shall conceive bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Why does that matter? Because Emmanuel is more than just a name. It's actually a meaning. In Exodus 3, he's the I am. I am in your life. I am. In Isaiah 7, Applied to Jesus in Matthew 1, he is the Emmanuel, God with you. You see, that's the difference between the timing of the, and the work of God in the Old Testament. God appears to come and go. The Spirit comes and goes. But in the New Testament, again, we have brighter light. We have a fuller revelation. We know more. We get more. We experience more. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, you will wait here. And soon the Spirit will fall upon you. And on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, the fire of God fell upon all those in the room. And they went out and began to preach in unknown tongues. And thousands were converted. 
And from that day until this, the Spirit of God does not come and go, come and go. The Spirit of God comes and stays. The Spirit of God is with us, with us, Emmanuel, God with us. It is the presence of God. I have God in me. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have God in you. Hear me, the God of gods dwells within the heart and life of every believer by his spirit. This is Emmanuel. This is the presence of God. Ultimately, this culminates in a very familiar section of Scripture, Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. Here, the apostle John is up in heaven, and he's recording what he's seeing. He concludes here, In chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. King James here has the word tabernacle. It just means the dwelling place, the house of God. The the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. Those things are gone, and the reason they're gone is because the presence of God is with us. So we have a piece of that now with the Spirit of God in us living in this broken world. But eventually, it's all headed toward no broken world, no broken lives, and only the presence of God giving us power and strength and joy and hope and all of these other things that we long for and wish we could find in this life, but we never do. So what's going on in Gideon's life? He's afraid. And we're afraid. He's concerned. We're concerned. He's confused, and we're confused. The only difference is he's got more right to all of that than we do because we have more Bible than he ever did. We have more history than he ever did. You say, I wish God would come and visit me like he visited Gideon. He has. He has. Neither ignore nor despise the promise of God to be with you. Friend, I don't know what you're going through, what you're going to go through. I don't know how hard it's going to be, how long it's going to be hard. I don't know any of that stuff. I just know this, you're not walking that road alone. You never have and you never will. Not in the company of God. God's going to use Moses and he does. God's going to use Gideon and he does. And he does so at the pleasure of God. What is he doing in your life? Same thing, only different. You say, well, I'm not doing battle with the Midianites. Aren't you glad? So I got challenges, I got troubles, I got problems. Yes, 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 yes. In this life, you'll have trouble. And just as soon as you think you put that trouble to bed, turns out he's got brothers. They show up. So let me encourage you. The presence of God is always with you. There's a third thing, quickly. Don't get confused with the will of God. This brings us to the fleece paragraph which begins here in Judges 6 and verse 36 the last paragraph in this chapter don't get confused on the will of God if I could speak as your pastor for a moment 
This fleece experience is a different kind of experience, but it seems to live on in the lives of many today. We think that because Gideon used the fleece, by the way, there's no record prior to Gideon doing this, of this ever being used. And there's no record after Gideon doing this of it being used again. So this is a one-off. But you hear people to say, say, well, this is not just descriptive, this is prescriptive. This is what we should do. We should lay out fleece. And that's how you determine the will of God. To which I say to you again, friend, don't ever forget this progressive revelation. What's happening in Judges chapter 6 is not prescriptive for those of us who live on this side of the cross. We have the Word of God. We have the promise of God. And I'm always reminded of these verses in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, where the Bible says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, including fleece, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us a more clear word by His own Son. Listen, this is the point of the parable of the, the vineyard. Remember, a landowner plants a vineyard. He has to go away, and he hires people to run the vineyard. And then he, he sends back folks who are going to come and collect the proceeds, and they beat the ambassadors from the owner. They beat the vice presidents, if you will. Beat them up. Send, get out of here. We're not giving you any money. We're running this show. We're taking it over. And that happens once, twice, three times, who knows, multiple times. And then he says, I know what, I'll send him my son, the son of the owner. Not just the vice president, but the son of the owner. And he goes to the vineyard, and the vineyard, the folks who are managing the vineyard, kill him. Kill him. They say, now this will be ours. <laughs> Turns out they miscalculated because the owner of the vineyard came and he put an end to them. Friend, be careful that you think that somehow you know what is really going on in Judges 6 and how that impacts you. The will of God is a big subject, really big subject. Uh, Drew always asked me to come over every semester to talk to the college students. And we do a question and answer. They meet on Wednesday night at a time that I'm usually in bed. And uh, one of the questions is always the will of God. And it's usually, how do I find out who I'm supposed to marry? That's the question. I want to, be, I want to get married. Is she in this room? That's the big question. So we always jump ahead of that and actually answer that question first because we know it's going to be asked. So the will of God is always a big question. And I've noticed that sometimes the reason college students don't get that question right is because their parents never got it right. Even their parents don't understand their, the will of God and their grandparents. So maybe some of your parents or grandparents of those folks, and I would encourage you not to get confused with the subject of the will of God. What happens here? It appears that Gideon has a sinking spell. He needs to know what God is up to. So he offers this fleece story. And it appears that Gideon is a bad guy because he's doing so. 
And in fact, there are many sermons. The sermon books are, are replete with sermons that are bashing Gideon. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but I will tell you again, this is analogous to God calling Moses. What did, what did God do with Moses? Well, he said, throw this stick on the ground. It turns into a snake. Pick it up. Turns back into a stick. Put your hand in your coat. Come out leprous. Put it back in. Come back clean. God, he does two things to validate, as it were, his authority to direct Gideon's life. It appears that's doing the same thing here. How do we know this is not a weak moment and that, that he's actually trying to figure out the will of God? Well, because God never rebukes him. There are other people who are people of, of weak faith that are, that, are, that, are, that are rebuked by God, clearly. Think of Zacharias, the, the father of John the Baptist. He is mute because of his doubt and so forth. But then there, there are earnest questions. Think of Mary and her questioning. How, how can this be since I'm a virgin? There, there's an earnestness to these questions as opposed to, if you will, a, a, a mockery of these questions. So we don't, with printed page, we don't really understand the, what's going on except judging by the actions of God. Now, how did God respond? Before you go off in a, a wild goose chase and say, well, this is, this is what he meant, why don't you consider the way God responds as an indicator of what is really going on here? So what is going on here? He asked for validation that he is God and that he is going to be with him. Not because he's not a man of faith, but rather because he is. He is a man of faith. And he wants God to show himself strong and powerful. And he wants these signs to be validation that he can report to, to these others. What are your credentials? Remember Moses' conversation is, how will these people agree with me? Tell them that I am sent you. Well, who's that? Throw that stick on the ground. Put your hand in your jacket. Gideon says, you want me to get an army? How can I have some credentials? I'm going to give you an idea here, fleece. It's a one-off though, friend. It's not the way you discern the will of God. Instead, we have an advantage, again, because it's a progressive unveiling or revealing of the Word of God, the cross. The cross. What, what, what advantage do we have over Gideon? Gideon? Gideon didn't know anything about the cross. He didn't know anything about the Messiah. That is to say, he didn't know anything compared to you and me. He, he didn't understand that. He didn't have the details of all of that. But I do and you do. Where's all this going? What has God done for you? May I suggest to you he's given you two signs. He's given you the sign of a sacrificed lamb. Jesus died. He died. And all that Old Testament Levitical code pointed to the death of a lamb. The book of Revelation tells us that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and that he's also a lion he's the lamb and lion and ultimately the lamb will lay down with the lion all of this as a sign but God doesn't stop with one sign he gives us a second because on the third day he raised him 
from the dead. So my story is not Gideon's story. Neither is yours. But our story matters too. And we need to know that God is with us. And that God is for us. And that God is who he says he is. And that if I'm going to give up houses and lands and reputation and die to self, am I doing it for the right one? Am I doing it for God, the one true God? And how do I know that he really is the one true God? My friend, he gave you the death of his son and then the resurrection of his son. No, you don't, you don't need a fleece to figure that out. You got something better than that. You have the cross and an empty tomb. And I tell you today, learn from Gideon's story. God is with you. God is for you. And if God is on your side, as we shall see next time, you can go to war with 300 men and none of them are carrying a weapon. And you're going to win. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, help us today to not get confused, to see this for what it really is, the testimony of your power and your strength and your comfort and your care. Help us, Father, to believe you, to follow you, to hope in you, trust in you. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the privilege of proclaiming Christ today and every Lord's day as we gather. And then to go out into the highways and hedges and byways of life and tell others, Thank you, God, that all of this matters. All this is part of your will. Help us to be faithful in following you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.